0: Outside of your family, probably you spend most of your time, if you're the average working American, you spend the other good chunk of your time at work. In fact, the American uh, culture is set up so we spend eight hours working, we have eight hours of free time, and generally we spend, or should spend, about eight hours sleeping. It's not always the case, but if you live to 70 years of age, you will have spent 20 accumulative years working, 20 years working. When I was 12 years old, it was time for me to get my first job, according to my parents. I was old enough to work. And though I had chores around the house, I also had to go out and have some kind of a job. So I would mow lawns at people who would let us and give us some money for it. We'd go over and we'd mow their lawn, my brother and I. Then I landed a job washing windows. Then I graduated, as I got older, to uh, becoming a busboy. Then when I really got professional, I became a gas station attendant. Then I became a Christian, and when I became a Christian, I thought, now my job, since I'm a believer, ought to be a bit more elevated, and I ought to uh, have something with real purpose and meaning behind it, not just your run-of-the-mill job. And I remember praying, Lord, I want a job. I need a job, Lord. You know I need a job. So would you provide a job for me? It doesn't matter, Lord. These are the words out of my mouth. What it is, where it is, I will serve you in that job. The Lord answered my prayer, and I got a job at Jess Turkey Ranch. It was just one more turkey among many. And my job is after the turkey's head was cut off and feet were cut off, it would come on the assembly line, and I'd put it under the meat hooks. I stayed faithful at that job for a whole day. (laughs) At the end of eight hours, I turned in my resignation, I quit. I just said, I can't handle this. This is ridiculous work. It's menial tasks that I don't want to perform. And then when I was going home that day, or maybe it was the next day, I started praying again, Lord, get me a job, any job, Lord, I'll do it. for. And I caught myself saying that, I swallowed my words. I began to realize that my attitude toward that menial, grunt task was a reflection of my own heart and my walk with the Lord. The message that we have given the title to this morning is we've given it the title, The Good Testimony of an Ambitious Worker. And that's sort of a summation of what these verses talk about. The Good Testimony of an Ambitious Worker, meaning a diligent, industrious worker, not someone who is self-exalting or self-ambitious, but hard-working, someone who's industrious enough to keep his eye on the Lord rather than keeping his eye on the clock. Now, that's not always easy to do. Sometimes we have jobs that we just hate, we just want to get them over with. There's a sign in a business in San Francisco that reads, if you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, you ought to be here five minutes before quitting time. People get motivated quick. We have already seen that this church was a very vibrant, on-the-move church. In fact, it really still amazes me that after such a short period of time that Paul spent there that this church had as much going for it as it did. They were filled with faith. They had the labor of love. Uh, they were filled with the expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. and. Uh, Paul was excited when he heard news come back to him from Timothy that, hey, listen, Paul, they're taking root. They're really growing. He got excited that there was such health inside the church. And he writes in the first three chapters about the noticeable health inside the church. But then in chapter 4, he speaks about their life outside the church. He speaks about their sexual immorality or morality that they ought to live at a different standard from those who are outside, not like the Gentiles, not promiscuous, but very pure, clean, sexually moral lives. We ought to live at a different sexual ethic. Now in verses 9 through 12, he talks about the Christian work ethic. And he elevates labor and work, and he shows that a diligent Christian worker can be a tremendous witness to those unbelievers who would watch his life. It's really an actually a very important concept and message for us to hear. Because a lot of us look at work as just pure drudgery. One word would describe work, drag. It is a drag. As soon as the alarm goes off in the morning all the way till quitting time, it's, just get me out of this. There are many people who have joined the Thank God It's Friday Club. They just want Friday to come. But in the Scripture, work itself, not only according to Paul but many Scriptures, would elevate the position of good hard work, hard labor. Um, This country, I believe, was built largely upon a Christian or a Judeo-Christian work ethic of kind of that entrepreneurial spirit, of that pioneer spirit going out and working hard, working diligently, and yet the longer we survive in this culture we're coming up with all sorts of uh, creature comforts and ways to get out of work which isn't bad to some degree but you know our culture is becoming ways to get the work out to somebody else or so that we don't have to do it I mean everything today is drive-through almost instant and drive-through Of course there's drive-through restaurants there's drive-in movies there's drive-through laundromats I've heard of drive-through churches Or you drive in, put the speaker in your car, eat the popcorn and watch the guy and go home. Somebody said that Americans would drive to the restroom if the doors were big enough. (laughs) Like the one person who said, I love hard work, I can sit and watch it for hours. And actually in this text, we're gonna see three credentials of an ambitious worker. Three credentials of an ambitious worker. We're gonna see what he's acknowledged for, first of all, what he aspires to, second of all, and what he aims at, thirdly. Look with me now at verse uh, 9 and 10. We'll see what he's acknowledged for. Concerning brotherly love, you remember that term, Philadelphia. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you should increase more and more." The thing that this ambitious Christian worker is acknowledged for is that his life is on the move. The Christian's life is never static. He is increasing more and more. The word here is um, a word that means to overflow. It is a word that is spoken of 17 times in the New Testament, perisuo, and it's mentioned three times in this book. I want you to turn back to chapter 3 and notice how this word is used again in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound, there's the word, perisuo, abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Now look down at chapter 4. Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound, there's the word again, more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. The word in all three instances means to exceed a fixed number, to overflow the boundaries, to be able to furnish so that you have an overabundance of something. And this is what Paul is getting at. The context is this. You guys are already being instructed on how to do this. But I want you to do it more and more. I don't want you to be content with where your life is now, but have sort of a holy discontent for becoming more and more excellent in the Christian life. Grow more. Abound more. I know that you love one another, God taught you how to love one another, but I prayed that it would overflow, that you take it out of the pew and into the workplace. That's really the context here, is that the brotherly love would flow more and more, and then in the next few verses he speaks about the work ethic. Paul and Peter followed a pattern of teaching that uh, sometimes we get a little weary of. In fact, if you read all of Paul's epistles, if you were to read them back to back, you'd say, well, he mentions a lot of the same stuff in each letter. Sometimes he repeats himself again and again in the same letter. And uh, our attitude is, okay, uh, been there, done that. Can you come up with something new, Paul? But actually, a mark of a good teacher is repetition. Listen to what Peter said when he wrote his letter. Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you already know them and are established in the present truth." That's really Paul's heart. I know you know these things, I taught them to you, God's showing you how to do it, but don't be content with a plateau. Keep going. It's evident that Paul saw the Christian life as always on the move, always on the grow, never stagnant, always moving and increasing more and more. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in his epistle, he said, add to your faith virtue. And add to virtue knowledge. And add to knowledge self-control. This world is full of plateauing people who would say, I've done enough. I've grown enough. Now I will sit at this plateau and I will level off. And there are some among our own ranks that may feel the same. I don't need to grow in the Lord anymore. I've read the Bible once. I don't need to go on in my Christian walk. Chuck Swindoll spoke of these and he said, like rats in a sewer pipe, their whole focus is limited to the tight radius of don't, won'ts, can'ts, and quits. But, he said, periodically we'll bump into a few refreshing souls who have decided that they aren't going to live in the swamp of the status quo or run scared of being different. One of the things we must all be careful of is that we don't end up in a spiritual coma. Oh, we're still alive. There are the vital signs there. But there's no growth. There's just a stagnation. We're not like we used to be. Some of us remember back to those early days of walking with the Lord, they were vibrant, they were filled with growth, filled with joy. We were constantly growing closer and closer. And we could ask ourselves the same questions Paul asked to the Galatians, what has hindered you? Some of us are really concerned about this. And if you are, I want to give you just a few practical suggestions of what you can do if you find yourself sort of plateauing and you want to grow further. Number one, talk to God about it every day till it gets better. If you see that slump in your Christian life, talk to God every day about it. Lord, I want to draw closer to you. You know that I'm at this place and I just want to hear your voice again and fall in love again with you. You just keep at it. Uh, Secondly, examine your life, self-examination. You don't always want to live in introspection, but we do need to examine our lives consistently and ask what attitudes, what habits have crept in. As Solomon put it, those little foxes that spoil the grapes, those little things that we've allowed to creep in that have taken our affection away from our commitment and our love for Jesus Christ. And then finally, we should evaluate ourselves as to hearing and reading this book. Are we like those Thessalonian believers we read about a few weeks ago who receive the Word of God as the Word of God? Would you say you're the kind of person who just listens or do you listen and read along? Uh, are you the kind who listens, reads, and takes notes and goes home and prays about it and applies it to your life and then tells other people about it? What do we do with spiritual truth? And that's just sort of a, a private quiz um, You might ask yourself, if you were to grade yourself on your Christian growth, would it be A? Would you get an A on it? Would you get a C on it? Are you excelling or are you just barely making it through? Paul's exhortation is, go for it. Give it your best shot. Keep consistently growing more and more. Now let's look at verse 11. After seeing what this worker is acknowledged for, increased growth. This is what he aspires to. Here's his exhortation. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, isn't that practical advice? Isn't that the kind of advice that a wise father would give to his kids as they're going out of the house? Son, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work hard. I love it. The Bible is so practical. Now let me give you a little bit of background. What most scholars believe has happened is there's a group in the church at Thessalonica who had quit their jobs recently. They had misunderstood what Paul said about the second coming of Jesus. Paul said, you can expect Him at any time. You'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. We'll talk about that next time we meet. But this group of people had become so frenzied and anxious about the soon return of Christ that they quit their jobs they now because they have a lot of time are meddling in other people's affairs and they're mooching off people in the church they're becoming parasites looking for handouts from other people because hey after all the Lord's coming back why should I work this attitude probably accounted for lots of family problems the guy couldn't provide for his own family and all sorts of dynamic relationships were being uh, hurt because this guy just or these some of these people wouldn't work. I remember in the early days of what we have called the Jesus Movement that started in the 60s and 70s and there was this revival that happened and many young people came to Christ, many people who, uh, you know, ex-surfer hippies of whom I was chief, uh, got saved. And there was a tendency to say, hey let's just drop out. This is our excuse now. Jesus is coming back. Since he's coming back, why should I go to college? Why should I really work hard? Uh, It'd be a waste of time. I'll just kind of drop out and wait on the mountainside for Jesus to pop in at any moment. Some were even even becoming irresponsible. Hey, so I have a big credit card bill. I might as well charge it up to the max. I'm going to be gone anyway. I won't have to pay for it. The Lord'll rapture me before that happens. In fact, I remember when. I told some of my friends that I was going to go to college. And they rebuked me. They said, what a waste of time. How unspiritual. Jesus will come back before you finish. But I remember the words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples. He said, occupy until I come. Stay busy. And in another place he said, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Now verse 11. This is what the ambitious worker aspires to. He said that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and so forth. Here's an interesting part. The word aspire could be translated restless eagerness in pursuit. Now, doesn't that sound like a contradiction, an oxymoron? Be restlessly eager to be quiet. say, uh, come again? In fact, the word quiet life means to be at rest. And you could translate this, be restless, to be restful. But actually what he's speaking about is not the physical rest because you think, boy, how can a person who has a lot of ambition be a person who has a quiet life? But the idea is the quietness, the tranquility of the inner man, the inner heart. It could be translated, live tranquilly or live restfully. Perhaps Paul is speaking to those frenzied individuals. They quit their jobs. They're all in an uproar. They have no rest at all. They're anxious about the coming of Jesus Christ, and they're just running around like bees with no direction. And uh, Paul is saying, Chill out, man. Aspire to live a quiet life. Live peacefully, restfully. That's your ambition. I think, however... That Paul is speaking about the inner peace that comes from settling down and sticking with a job or a task. Sticking with a job or a task. Turn with me to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's a follow-up letter to this letter. Same group of people he's writing to. But he sort of amplifies this thought. Beginning in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3... Paul says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now it's evident, as you read the rest, that the disorderly brother is the guy who quit his job. He's a busybody, and he's not busy at his own task. He's not minding his own business. For we read, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you, in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. That's the idea behind aspiring to live a quiet life. Now back to our text, the second thing that follows up on that is mind your own business. And in the original language, it's speaking of a continual habit. It could be translated, make it your habit of attending to your own private affairs. Now you can see what problems quitting your job because you think Jesus is going to return would have. They quit their job, they had a lot of free time, and they stuck their meddling noses in other people's business. And so one follows the other. Aspire to live a quiet life. Mind your own business and work hard with your own hands. Now this is not to say that as Christians we should not be concerned or get involved in the lives of other people. We should. We are our brother's keeper. If we see somebody has a need, we ought to be there and concerned to minister to the need. But there's a big difference between sticking our nose in people's business and sticking our hearts into people's problems. There are some people who just love to play the Holy Spirit. They got a lot of extra time and instead of being attending to their own affairs, their own business, their own walks with the Lord, they're the gospel gestapo. They're out with their fingers pointed at every little person who's not doing right and they're meddling. They've got an opinion for everyone and everything. Instead of saying, Lord, as I examine my life before you, I need to live a quiet life and mind my business and work hard. There is a place to be concerned. but. Paul is speaking about those people who were so, in the name of concern, meddling in affairs they ought not to meddle in. And if I were to rephrase this, if I were to retranslate this in modern vernacular, I would say Paul is saying, study to be quiet or live a quiet life and get a life. Get a life. Get your own life. Don't worry so much about what everybody is or is not doing as much as what you ought to be doing before the Lord. There is a prayer that an honest person prayed that would be worth repeating. This person said, Lord, thou knowest that I am growing older, and keep me from the idea that I must express myself on every subject. Release me from the craving to meddle in everyone's affairs. Keep my tongue from the recital of endless details of the past which do not interest others. Seal my lips when I'm inclined to talk about my aches and pains. They are increasing with the years, and my love to speak of them grows sweeter as time goes by. Teach me the glorious lesson that occasionally I may be wrong. Make me thoughtful, but not interfering. Helpful, but not bossy. With the wisdom and experience I have gained, it does seem a pity not to use it all. But thou knowest, Lord, that I want a few friends at the end of life. So help me to pray more to talk less, and beyond all this, let me continue to flourish spiritually and to bring forth fruit to thy glory, amen." Then finally in verse 11, Paul talks about working with your own hands. You're acknowledged for increasing in your walk, but the Christian worker aspires to working with his own hands. Did you know that the Greeks hated manual labor? That's exactly where these Thessalonian believers are, they're in a Greek culture, and the Greek culture was taught to hate work. That's why we have slaves. They do all the work, you sit and think up ways to not do any. Well Paul broke that mold because he came into this town and he worked hard. When he went to Corinth he was a tent maker, he found Aquila, Priscilla, and he lodged with them because they were all tent makers. And Paul talked in 2 Thessalonians about working with his own hands. You need to understand that work in the Bible is given a high honor, it's given a high place. Even before the fall, from the beginning of creation, the Bible tells us the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Adam had a job. Now, it was an awesome job. He got to name animals live in a beautiful environment, but nonetheless he had a responsible job to tend and to keep the garden. You say, yeah, but just read another chapter, Skip, and you'll find that work is a curse because it talks about labor and toil as part of the curse. Usually people say that who don't want to work. Work is not a curse. It's the sweat and laborious toil that accompanies work that was part of the curse. But even later on in the Ten Commandments, The Bible says, six days you shall labor and do your work. And throughout the scripture is given a high place. Proverbs chapter 14, we read, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Then Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Now in the New Testament context, there are many reasons that Christians ought to work. They ought to work principally to provide for themselves and for their family. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But there's another reason that we work. Not just to provide for our needs, but also to have enough to help people who really need it. There are people who lose their jobs, who would love to work, and they can't. There's a disability, there's a problem, and they need help. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, I want to be careful here. We have to be careful not to stretch this text or any of these other scriptures about working and glibly apply them or misapply them to everyone who's jobless. If you've ever been without a job, you know that that can be a very traumatic experience to lose your job. It's a very traumatic personal hurt. And Paul is not speaking about the unemployed. In other words, those people who would like to work if they had a job. He's not speaking about them. He's speaking about those who are idle, those who have opportunity, but they do not work. That's what he's speaking about. Uh, Far be it from any of us to judge the condition of people who are out of work, because this country, it seems, in many cases, the joblessness is on the rise. But we also know that people can use this for scamming. I often see signs as I drive on on on-ramps of the freeway, as people are standing out there with a sign that says, we'll work for food. Now, love thinks the highest, and so I automatically want to think that person will work for food. I have made it a habit, as best as I can, to give the person the church address, phone number, to offer to get him there if he needs a way to get there, and say, you know what, we'll give you a job for a week or even two weeks, solid. You'll have a guaranteed income. You come over and work. Do you know how to get there? Oh yes, I'll be there. Thank you very much. In all of the years we've done this, we've had only one person actually come to work for food. Then there was that special on television where a lot of these people were uncovered as just making big bucks during the day. I mean hundreds of dollars because people look at them and say, well, I don't have time to give them work, but I'll give them a couple bucks and I'll feel better as I drive by. Now. I don't know that everybody's like that. I'm sure that there are well-meaning people who will work for food, but some of them won't. And they should be honest enough to carry a sign that says, we'll beg for money, instead of we'll work for food. Because I've offered them, some of them, lots of opportunities, but haven't had any takers. In the Scripture, as much as work is exalted, laziness is condemned. Listen to this language of Solomon in Proverbs 6. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? Uh, You kind of picture a guy standing over a guy's bed, and it's one in the afternoon, and how long are you going to sleep? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. It's like the guy who went to his doctor and he was having problems, and he said, Doc, give it to me straight. What's my problem? After thorough physical examination, the doctor said, You want me to level with you? He said, Yes. Okay, here it is. You're just plain lazy. That's all. And the guy in a kind of a slurred tone said, Well, would you put that in medical terms so I can tell my wife? (laughs) All right, let's look at verse 12. Let's look at what his aim is. We see that he's acknowledged for increased growth. We see that he aspires to live a quiet life, tranquility of heart, and uh, to mind his own business and to work hard with his hands. What is the aim of all that? Verse 12, that you may walk properly. Actually, the word that should be translated in order that. That's how it is in the original language, hina, in order that. In other words, as you aspire to live a good life, working hard, you have a result, you have an aim, a desire, in order that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. First of all, when you mind your own business and you work hard, you give a good testimony to unbelievers. That's what he means by those who are outside, outside the realm of the Christian life. Your work is a stage of Christianity. The home is sort of the preparation, and that's where it's all meted out and worked to be able to present the Christian life to the world. The the workplace is the stage. At work, people are looking at you. They find out you're a Christian, and they're examining your life. Uh, They have questions like, "Okay, that guy's a Christian, and uh, I say that I'm not a Christian. Well, I wonder, how does a Christian come in Monday morning? What's his attitude? How does he react when pressure is put upon him? Um, What do Christians do on the weekend? What's the business ethic of a Christian? They want to see if there's any difference. Your life is that stage. Now, we don't like that. It's it's difficult to be scrutinized. You might hear that and go, I don't know if I like that. I don't like people looking at me in the fishbowl all the time and examining my life and scrutinizing it. That's uncomfortable because I'm not perfect. Well that's true we're not perfect and that's not the idea is that you live in utter perfection. But though it's uncomfortable to be scrutinized by those people, who's the first person they're going to look for when their life starts to crumble? They might mock you, they might jeer you, they might look at you and say, oh you say you're a Christian, how come you reacted that way when the boss told you to do that? But you live in a very strategic world. You're on stage. And as you live out your Christian life in the workplace, when the unbeliever's life starts to crumble, they're going to come and talk to you. They're going to say, excuse me, uh, I need prayer. What do you mean you need prayer? Last week you mocked the fact that I was praying. Yeah, I know, but I'm really, I need prayer. Would you help me? They're going to come to you because they see your life lived out in that place. Some of my best years in ministry, have been in the secular world. I remember working in uh, the hospitals. I worked at uh, hospitals in Southern California in radiology and even here in Albuquerque. And I remember uh, somebody coming up to me one time and he said, "Uh, do you think you'll ever be in full-time Christian ministry? I said, I am. Right now I am a full-time Christian. I am a Christian not just on weekends but all the time. And I'm here. I am in the ministry because you probably wouldn't come to church, and so the church has come to you. In fact, one of the greatest witnesses you could ever give is to work hard, to declare that you're a Christian and work really hard. When uh, we took a team to Israel years ago, I was single, I lived in California, and we took a team to live on a kibbutz, which is, uh, it's a place where you work really hard. In fact, when we came there and they said, Oh, Americans, you know, you're all soft and you like TV dinners and you don't like to work hard. That's the reputation when we got there. We all got together and decided, How are we going to crack this? This is a tough nut to crack. These people look very leery at us, like, you know, we're real soft and we don't want to work. And How can we present the gospel most effectively? We decided that we would volunteer for all of the grunt jobs on the kibbutz that nobody else wanted. So Passover was coming up, and they needed to bring the chickens to the chicken house, put them in cages, and send them all over Israel. And that took lots of extra hours. So we volunteered after work. Sometimes we took shifts from 2 in the morning to 4 or 5 in the morning. And, uh, and we just worked and worked and worked. After a couple weeks, some of the heads of this kibbutz farm came to us and said, you know, you guys are a little different than some of the other volunteers. Uh, Why are you volunteering for all these jobs? How come you're working so hard? We've never seen volunteers work as hard as you. And we started winning their hearts as we saw that we were there to serve them, to love them, and to do it as unto the Lord. It made a big impact in their lives. And I think that's what Peter was getting at when in his epistle he wrote, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us." Wouldn't that be a great testimony? Oh, these Christians work differently. They're hard workers. You know that that actually happened in history? In the second century AD, Justin Martyr wrote that unbelievers noticed the ethics of the Christian world were different. He wrote this, "'Many who have come in contact with us were overcome and changed from violent and tyrannical characters either from having watched the consistency of the Christian neighbors or from having observed the wonderful patience of Christian travelers when overcharged or from doing business with Christians. Isn't that an awesome testimony? That Christians do business at a higher level. So what do we aspire to? Well, we aspire to working hard, minding our own business, in order that we can walk properly towards those who are outside. Now I want to include in this envelope of application something else, and I don't think I'm stretching it. To walk properly in the business context before unbelievers, I think, means that we pay our bills on time. Now I know that there are circumstances that can prevent all sorts of things from happening and we get into debt, but if you want to be a good Christian witness, pay your bills on time. In fact, it's a lousy witness to not pay the bills that you have. Now, it's easy in our culture to buy things we don't need with money we don't have. We call that credit. And many of us who want to be in the jet set are in the debt set now because of that. We need plastic surgery. We need our credit cards taken away, some of us. It'll come back to haunt you. That kind of mindset where everything's extended and you don't pay the bills and you have all this credit can wear on you and on your family. Marriages break up. One of the big reasons is because of financial problems, overextension in the financial realm. And it can ruin your witness. And I think that this is all a reflection of our relationship with God. Listen to what Jesus said, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, that is money. Who will commit to your trust true riches? So here's the flow of the passage. Love one another. God's shown you that. We taught you that. And you're already doing it. But don't stop. Keep loving one another and let your love flow out of the pew into the marketplace. And you aspire to live a tranquil, restful, quiet life, to mind your own business, to work hard with your hands. And when you do that, The outsiders are going to look at your life and go, wow, they're different. And then finally we see in that verse that you may lack nothing. See, that's the other result. You're aiming to walk pleasing and without reproach to outsiders, but also so that you can lack nothing. You'll provide for yourself and for your family. Now, some of you have a Bible that reads, so that you may not be dependent on anybody. The reason it's translated two different ways from one version to the next is because the noun is neuter. And it could either mean a thing or a person. So it could be translated so that you won't lack anything, or it could be translated so that you don't depend on anybody. Actually, both are equally true. When you work hard, you serve the Lord, you give a good witness to people who are outside, you're going to have all that you need, and you're not going to need to depend upon anybody. That's really the idea of the text. So he would be saying, Work hard so that you don't have to keep depending on other people. So that you don't have to latch on to somebody and have them support you continually. So, the ambitious Christian worker is marked by continual growth, hard work, and a great testimony. In short, he's one who never plateaus, but he's one who lives his life before the world in the marketplace And he's continuing to make new levels in his relationship with God and his love for others. I would like to sum up this by the story of Sid, the ugly caterpillar. It goes like this. Sid was an ugly caterpillar with orange eyes. He spent his life graveling, excuse me, groveling in the graveling. No, groveling (laughs) and squirming in the dirt of God's earth. One day, Sid got a terrific idea. He crawled up the stem of a bush, made his way to a branch, secreted a translucent fluid onto that branch. He made a kind of button out of the fluid. He turned himself around and attached his posterior anatomy to that button. And then he shaped himself into a J, curled up, proceeded to build a house around himself. There was a lot of activity for a while. But before long Sid was entirely covered up and you couldn't see him anymore. One day Sid began to raise the window shades of his house. He let you look in and see a variety of colors. On another day an eruption took place. Sid's house shook violently. That little cocoon jerked and shook until a large beautiful wing protruded from one of the windows. Sid stretched it out in all of its glory. He continued his work until another gorgeous wing emerged from a window on the other side of the house. At this stage of Sid's life, you might have wanted to help, but you didn't. For fear if you tried to pull the rest of Sid's house off, you would maim him for the rest of his life. And so you let Sid convulse and wriggle his way to freedom without any outside intervention. Eventually Sid got his house off his back, ventured out onto a branch, stretched and spread those beautiful wings. He was nothing like the old worm he used to be. And you know what? Sid did not crawl back down the bush and start groveling and squirming in the dirt again, no. Instead, he took off with a new kind of power, flying power. Now, instead of swallowing dust, Sid flies from flower to flower, enjoying the sweet nectar in God's wonderful creation. He wouldn't be content with being a caterpillar. He wanted to soar. And here's the beauty of the Christian worker, increasing, becoming more excellent in the Christian life, working hard, minding his own business, taking the struggles as they come so that people will look at him and go, oh, that guy's different, that guy's different. We provide for our own and make a good testimony.